So today's reading is Joshua 24, 1 through 24. It can be found on page 220 of the Bibles next to your seats as well as on the screen. This is God's word. Then Joshua assembled all the tribes of Israel at Shechem. He summoned the elders, leaders, judges, and officials of Israel, and they presented themselves before God. Joshua said to all the people, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Long ago your ancestors, including Terah, the father of Abraham and Nahor, lived beyond the Euphrates River and worshipped other gods. But I took your father Abraham from the land beyond the Euphrates and led him throughout Canaan and gave him many descendants. I gave him Isaac, and to Isaac I gave Jacob and Esau. I assigned the whole country of Seir to Esau, but Jacob and his family went down to Egypt. Then I sent Moses and Aaron, and I afflicted the Egyptians by what I did there, and I brought you out. When I brought your people out of Egypt, you came to the sea, and the Egyptians pursued them with chariots and horsemen as far as the Red Sea. But they cried to the Lord for help, and he put darkness between you and the Egyptians. He brought the sea over them and covered them. You saw with your own eyes what I did to the Egyptians. Then you lived in the wilderness for a long time. I brought you to the land of the Amorites, who lived east of the Jordan. They fought against you, but I gave them into your hands. I destroyed them from before you, and you took possession of their land. When Balak, son of Zippor, the king of Moab, prepared to fight against Israel, he sent for Balaam, son of Beor, to put a curse on you. But I would not listen to Balaam, so he blessed you again and again, and I delivered you out of his hand. Then you crossed the Jordan and came to Jericho. The citizens of Jericho fought against you, as did the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, Girgashites, Hivites, and Jebusites, but I gave them into your hands. I sent the hornet ahead of you, which drove them out before you, and also the two Amorite kings. You did not do it with your own sword and bow, so I gave you a land on which you did not toil, and cities you did not build, and you live in them and eat from vineyards and olive groves that you did not plant. Now fear the Lord and serve him with all faithfulness. Throw away the gods your ancestors worshipped beyond the Euphrates River and in Egypt, and serve the Lord. But if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether the gods of your ancestors served beyond the Euphrates or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. When the people answered, then the people answered, Far be it from us to forsake the Lord and to serve other gods. It was the Lord our God himself who brought us and our parents up out of Egypt from that land of slavery and performed those great signs before our eyes. He protected us on our entire journey and among all nations through which we traveled. And the Lord drove out before us all the nations, including the Amorites who lived in the land. We too will serve the Lord because he is our God. Joshua said to the people, You are not able to serve the Lord. He is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your rebellion and your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, he will turn and bring disaster on you and make an end of you, 
after he has been good to you. But the people said to Joshua, No, we will serve the Lord. Then Joshua said, You are witnesses against yourselves that you have chosen to serve the Lord. Yes, we are witnesses, they replied. Now then, said Joshua, Throw away the foreign gods that are among you and yield your hearts to the Lord, the God of Israel. And the people said to Joshua, We will serve the Lord our God and obey him. It's the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Our God of grace, as we come to meet with you in this time, uh, we come from all sorts of different backgrounds and places, and there's always a mixture of uh, stories in this room each week. So we might sit here today, and, and most of the words that we have been invited to participate in have seemed strange to us, perhaps uh, we can't even imagine that they would come off of our own lips. And we're, we have so many questions before anything like that could happen. And others of us come with great difficulty. There have been trials or suffering in the last week. There's been death. There has been um, revisiting of old wounds. And we're hurting. And our vision is clouded with dark things. And we're hoping that there's some light today. And others of us come with, it it may even be possible that there's some of us here so thankful and so grateful, we wondered if you could be this present in our life. And you have been by answering prayers or by becoming clear to us through choices we make or through events that have happened in our life. All these different places we come from, stories that seem so different and yet they're, all of us, we're the same. Help us to know as we think about listening to you how we are all in the same boat in one crucial way. We are more of a mess than we care to admit. And your message comes to us over and over again. You say that you, you love us and move towards us in our mess so that we might know we're more loved and accepted in Christ than we ever imagined. Would you speak to us through that grace right now? In Jesus' name we pray, amen. We don't uh, very often run into examples of commitment and really embracing the idea of commitment in today's world. This is from an article about the, in the New York Times about the Schmidt Freelander wedding in December. The writer, uh, Ginia Belafonte, says, Few events have so perfectly distilled the essence of a certain New York lifestyle as it is practiced right now, one steeped in proselytizing bohemian entrepreneurialism. Say that three times fast. Proselytizing bohemian, uh, bohemian entrepreneurialism. Get, get the, I love this. When guests arrived on Saturday night two weeks ago, They were greeted with name tags that asked them to declare a commitment. Lest they not take the request seriously, the host had additional cards printed that asked them to name something you are really committed to. The cards contained further imperatives. Name one action you can take in the next 24 hours that is aligned with your commitment. Other cards prompted guests towards... I love this one. This one's terrifying, really. Towards a treasure hunt in which they were to encourage to meet new people. 
um, at a wedding. I, I just the idea that you'd walk into a wedding and be greeted with "Name your commitment and what action will you take before anything's even happened." You, where am I? What what is this? Uh, she goes on to say the wedding was probably the first in the city to be held as a kind of TED conference, uh, technology, entertainment, design. Uh, after the ceremony in which chants were chanted and vows written by the couple's friends were exchanged, guests sat down to a series of talks with PowerPoint presentations on subjects of interest to the couple. Ecological efficiency. Neuroscience. Holistic healing. Those who did not care to listen wandered about eating dumplings and pop- popcorn, which made up the entire nuptial meal. So there you, I just find that fascinating. Um, on so many levels, really, um, when you get a sense of our culture's feeling of commitment, I mean, we're very non-committal. We're very uncommitting, right? I saw an advertisement the other day. I don't watch very much TV, so I figure this is, symbolizes something. If I saw it, you know, it must be on a lot. That it was for a internet service provis- provider, and and you know the the birthday musician magician, not musician. The birthday magician is at the breakfast table with his family, and everybody's like, "Why is a birthday magician still here a day later?" And it's like, "Well, he came with a two-year contract, and the whole thing, you know, the whole thing is, you know, our internet service provider doesn't come with a two-year contract. You know, contracts are bad. You know, we're we're anti-commitment. There's a joke uh, about." how churches deal with this, that there was a church struggling with people not committing to things, and so they had a Bible study, an eight-week Bible study class that they started called Total Commitment, you know, and you could sign up in the back. And, uh, and somebody came up uh, to the pastor after the announcement was first made and seemed hesitant to join and asked if there was a way that he could audit the class. Um, you know, that's... so. I, just, I find that if you describe us, we're the kind of people that we don't want to be nailed down. We don't want to be locked in. We don't want to be pinned down. We want to stay non-committal and free, keeping our options open like free agents of sorts, able to hang in and wait for a better offer to come our way. So we end up you know, never drinking anyone's Kool-Aid, so to speak. In this Joshua 24 story, and I, I can hardly do justice to this story because it's epic, and here we are with just you know maybe 20 minutes to deal with it, so I have to skip a whole lot of things that you're probably wondering, what on earth was going on? I'm sorry, ask me after the service. Um, I could have done five sermons out of this, but I'm just going to do one. But the thing that's striking is, here they are. The, 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 the key phrases that some of you from your church experience have even heard out of this text, you know, the ones that get repeated are, Choose today who you will serve. And then Joshua is saying, as for me and my house, is it we or I? I will serve the Lord. You know, these epic words of commitment. And really, um, it's a strange commitment scenario. It's unusual because the first 13 verses describe a story. Should I answer it? What do you think? <laughs> or ignore it? Um, Somebody's going out. I've always wondered what I would do when that happened, when that, somebody knocked on that door right in the middle of my sermon. And I still don't know. I just guess I'm just going to push through it here. Um, you know, I, I think uh, these first 13 verses, they tell a story, but it's an odd story. Who tells their, the story of their people? And who passes this story on from generation after generation, the way the people of Israel do, the way the Jewish people did? Who does this? Who tells this kind of story 
I think Jimmy, I think Jimmy went around, Catherine. I think we're good. Yeah. Um, who tells this kind of story and basically, in the most unflattering way, it's not about them. You get this story that's all about what God has done. In fact, it starts out with, well, your ancestors, they were in some other foreign country worshiping foreign gods until I started doing stuff. And you, and you start reading it, and it's God's words. At every point, it's about what he did to get them where they were. The people of Israel, at this point, their whole life story, their whole ancestral story that they passed on was a story of a people with no land, with no geographical identity, with really no identity at all. And finally now, after the, the litany of the story that you're told here, finally they have a foothold in the promised land. They're there. They're not all the way there yet. There's still a lot to go, but it's kind of a, finally a reality now. They have a foothold and how is the story told? What it, it, it's a point of commitment, but what are they committing to? A story in which they don't, they don't make the things happen. It's not about them. Who tells their family story that way? You know, maybe spring break, you're going to go visit uh, some sites or see some, let's say you toured a couple candy shops, you know, the Jelly Belly Factory or the Ghirardelli uh, place in San Francisco. What kind of stories are they going to tell about the families who started these Businesses, while well, they, they triumphed over difficulty, the first shot burned down, but then they made the second. You know, you, it, but it's all about the, the, how they climbed the mountain to success and they got a foothold in this state of California and, and, and on and on. It's all about them and their accomplishments. This story is not about the resume of the people of Israel. They are not writing their own script. This is a story where God plucks them out and they're the luckiest ones in whom despite all their failures, God writes, is writing a beautiful story. And so what they're doing is just, this big commitment is like just is writing a thank you note back to God. It's a point of, of saying, we commit to this God who writes our whole story, you know? We're not used to that. We tell stories and we commit to things in a way that we say, here's what I did or here's what I'm, I'm going to commit today. Oh, it's about what I'm going to do this commitment they're making is to what God has already done. It's radically different. It's radically different from how ancient people groups would write their story, their own story. For them to do this was very countercultural, to pass on this story as their story that they own. God's at the, they're not at the center of it. It's a very unflattering picture. And they're at Shechem, which is important because... Um, this is like a commitment landmark um, or a recommitment landmark. They know in their stories, Abraham stopped at Shechem and his grandson Jacob stopped at Shechem. Two people who recommitted at Shechem to this God who, did they write their own stories? No. Did they make a name for themselves? No. Abraham and Jacob are the ones God changed their name. He wouldn't even let them keep their name. And they're at Shechem where Abraham... And Jacob, whose name is Israel, made commitments and built altars to God. We do it, in a sense, every week. We do the same kind of thing as verses 1 through 13. In the, the communion time, we have this thanks, prayer of thanksgiving, or we call it Eucharistic prayer, and it recounts the story God is writing through his actions, and you're invited once again to say, yes, I, I let God write the script. I commit to that God I'm not making a name for myself. I'm not the one who writes my story. 
but we have to, you know, we have to kind of remember that story and remember how it goes. And so we read these, or I read these different kinds of Eucharistic prayers. So it'll say, it'll go like this. You are holy, O God of majesty, and blessed is Jesus Christ, your son, our Lord, whom, whom you sent to deliver us. Notice who the subject of all of this is. From the bondage of death and slavery to sin. In humility, he descends from your heights to kneel in obedience to love's command. He who is boundless takes on the bondage of our sin. He who is free takes our place in death's prison. In the deserts of our wanderings, he sustains us, giving us his body as manna for our weariness. The cup of suffering which he drank has become for us the cup of salvation. In his death, he ransomed us from death's dominion. In his resurrection, he opened the way to eternal life. It's, and then we, we, we hear that, and then we have a chance to say, yes, I commit or recommit to you being the writer of my story. And I wonder where that finds you today if you think about your life. Isn't it true? Couldn't it be said that um, you spend a lot of time uh, under the burden and the pressure of writing your own story? And if God could say something to you today, it would be, Today, at least today, don't wait another day. Let me take that pressure out. Let let me write your story. I can do it so much better. (laughs) Let me write, be absorbed into this grand story of grace. Let me write you into it. Come on, take the pressure off. And doesn't it kind of make sense that there has to be these moments of deliberate choice? Because for one thing, you have to see, I think, and the Israelites had to see when they recommit or when you commit or recommit, something's going to get pushed out. And so we see in verse 23, you know, it's probably going to hurt. In verse 23, uh, throw away the foreign idols. This is the way it's said. Let me find it here. Uh, Now then, throw away the foreign gods that are among you and yield your hearts to the Lord the God of Israel. Throw, there's some stuff that's going to be, not just put it on the back burner, but throw it away. Um, and then there's this, this, I think it's more vivid to get at the concept by saying not just yield your hearts to, to the Lord, but give your guts to God. That's kind of how that, that word really literally comes across. Your guts, your core. And what are you giving it to? You know, you get senses of it at the end of the day. What are you losing sleep over? What are you anxious about? What, what has you driving, you know, anxiously about things at work or with your family? What are you chasing after? What are you giving your guts to? Uh, Martin Luther, uh, the great reform, reformer in the Protestant tradition, he said that a god, and this is, you know, talking about throwing away your foreign gods, a god is that to which your soul clings. I was listening to one of my favorite um, sermons by a, a, a scholar, a biblical scholar named Bruce Watke. And he has this part where he says, yeah, okay, that's what Luther says. Uh, let, me, let me tweak it a little bit. And he says, a God is that to which you find or in which you find your security and significance. Do you ever, you ever think about where you find your security and significance and then think about the spiritual data that, that is there at that observation? Have you had the self-awareness to think that through? And he goes through to say, most of us find it in money. And if we don't have money, if we're young enough, we find it in our physical appearance. 
And then he says, if you don't have that, you know, maybe you find it in power, getting what you want out of people or manipulating things to get your way. And then he, you know, he kind of self-deprecating. He says, if you don't have any of that, and he says, like me, you know, he's a, the, the scholar and teacher, he says, you might find it in your ability to teach. <laughs> you know? And he says, I could find my significance in this sermon. Oh, and that speaks to me. Where's your significance? What are you, what's your soul clinging to? I love how this passage really gets at, in verse 2, it talks about their, their ancestors worshiping foreign gods, but then now they've moved into this new land where there's all these other, the gods of all the geography and the nations. It's dealing with your genealogical idolatry and your ge- geographical idolatry. It's dealing with both. Have you looked at it that way ever? Have you thought about your, what, what are the influences that have been important to where you've gotten today, you know, family, upbringing. What has shaped you? What's your genealogy in a sense? And how has that put you in a certain way to chase after certain things? Or just your geography. Most of us are immune almost to observing the, the kind of the cultural idolatry that's around us. It's hard to see. It's like the water we swim in, the things that are of top priority to us, culture. We get sucked in. We don't even realize we're doing it. Um, I think it's good to consider this. You know, if you're going to make, if you're going to say, I commit to the God who writes me into his story, well, what are all those things I'm chasing after that are in his place? I think, um, just thinking about commitment, I realize, you know what, in some ways, non commitment is an idol of our culture, is it not? And so if you're, if you're connected through Twitter um, or maybe our website, I threw this. This fake prayer out this week, um, you can find it on the Tri Faith blog. Dear Holy God of Non-Commitment. This is a prayer probably most of us pray more than any other. In keeping with your demands, I've only prayed to you a few times, as haphazardly and half-heartedly as you desire. Give me strength and fortitude to resist the temptation to commit to things, so that I might live in in the happiness of having my options perpetually open for a better offer. Let no one get the impression that I belong to them in any way or that they have any right to make demands on my schedule, my allegiance, my finances, or my affection. Keep me safely out of reach of membership dues and contracts. May I create no legacy and not ever be celebrated for my longevity by sacrificing for nothing meaningful. Finally, grant that by the power of your sacred flakeability, my life be full of dispensable relationships that never pin me down. You get the sense that to, to never commit to anything and to make many commitments and partial commitments and have a life of those kind of globbed together is really to make a pretty big commitment to a cultural value that doesn't leave much room for God's big story. I think a lot of us find ourselves in a place where To be honest, God has created you in such a unique, intricate, beautiful way with all kinds of things about you that he has in mind to um, make come alive in a unique way as he writes you into his big story of grace. But we find ourselves not yet wrapped up in that story maybe not yet committed, not yet jumping aboard. It hasn't been maybe framed for us. It's not on our minds the way Joshua stands up and says, look at this story, look at what it's all about. 
this grand story of grace that God has chosen to write you into. I mean, if you're sitting here today, this is true of you. If you're even hearing this message, God has decided to write you in into a beautiful place in a story that you don't, in a place you don't earn to have. You're a character in this big drama of this world and of his rescuing of this broken world. You're a character in it. You didn't do anything to prepare for it. You don't even know your lines. And he's written you in. He's given you a part. Are you going to jump in? Are you going to commit? The story, I think, that, picture, that, that shows this well, I, I was really inspired to hear this about a year ago um, from the civil rights movement. Clarence Jones tells the story of how he got involved with um, Dr. King. Um, he gets, gets this phone call from uh, the head of the legal team of Dr. Martin Luther King who says, you know, hey, Clarence Jones, you know, he's, he's an attorney, he's 29 years old, and, he's, and he gets this phone call from this, this older attorney who says, we'd like to have you move out to Montgomery, Alabama and join our legal team. We're getting hit with lots of, lots of um, lawsuits and we need, we need a strong team. And Clarence Jones says, you know, he's a 29-year-old lawyer, 29 year old lawyer, just moved out to California. And he says, no, I just moved here. I can't go. I can't do it. And they hang up the phone. And the next day, the, the attorney calls back from Dr. King's legal team and says, you know what, I forgot to, I, I didn't realize this when we talked, that Dr. King is actually making a trip and he's got a speaking engagement near you. He, and I talked to him and mentioned he should stop in and talk to you. And so he might be stopping by this weekend. And sure enough, you know, the knock on the door, and there's Dr. King and one of his uh, colleagues. And he comes in, and, uh, and, he, and he, he gets into it, and he says, um, he says, you know, Clarence, we have, uh, or Mr. Jones, we, we have a great need right now for, um, how he said, young Negro professionals, because that's just how he talked then, um, young Negro professionals to join our movement because we're getting hit with these charges and these, every time we try to do something, somebody puts in a lawsuit against us and we need people like you, good legal clerks, to join the team. And he said, you know, same answer. No, 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 no I can't do it. I just moved here. I have my wife and we, we just got established here in California and I can't move to Montgomery. I'm sorry. I respect your movement. I love what you're doing. And then the phone rings the next day and Dr. King's uh, a secretary says, uh, Mr. Jones, we just want to, I just wanted to, say thank you on behalf of Dr. King. He, he so enjoyed meeting with you. Um, but he forgot to invite you in, to be his guest at a speaking engagement he's having. He's speaking at a church tomorrow, and he would like you to be there. He would like you to be a special guest. So, so he, go, he hangs up the phone, and his wife says, you may not be going to Montgomery, Alabama. She's getting a little feisty that he's not helping out Dr. King. She says, you may not be going to Montgomery, Alabama, but you're going to that church. She says. So he goes to this church in Southern California, and Dr. King gets up to deliver his sermon. He says, my topic today is the need for um, uh, young professional Negroes to join the movement of their brothers and sisters in the South to help them in their fight for freedom and equality. And he goes on to this message, and he's speaking to a crowd of, um, of accomplished young African Americans. And um, I forget the, the church's name or the neighborhood name. And then he gets to kind of through most of the sermon. He says, for example, the other day I came to the home of a young attorney and he said, my friends in New York in whom I have great respect tell me about this man that his brain has been touched by the Lord himself. 
And he goes on to describe how incredibly smart and intelligent this attorney is. And, and Clarence Jones is sitting there thinking, I want to meet this guy. You know, this, and, and, and then all of a sudden it becomes clear because he said, I went, and I, had, I went into this man's home. And he goes and describes having, you know, having this chat. And he, he basically says, and, he, and he, wouldn't, he wouldn't join up and he wouldn't help out. And he, he had other things going on. And he said, uh, he forgot from whence he came. And then he, you know, transitioned. So many of you here today, somebody did something in order for you to get a measure of success to where you are today. And, you know, you you maybe have forgotten where you came from. And, you know, the sermon ends and Clarence Jones walks up to Dr. King afterwards and shakes his hand and says, when do you want me to move to Montgomery, Alabama? He cast uh, the story, really, didn't he? He cast the big story that was happening. And he said, uh, finally, after like a third try, I'm going to do it. I'm going to commit. I think that's what we need. I think we need to hear the story. We need to know it. Um, we need to get grabbed by it. In City Life Church, in many ways, if there's ever anything here around you or in your life that represents the story of grace that God is at work doing, certainly one example is this church. I mean, I, I definitely want you to think about your connection to God and, and address that. The God of grace who wants to write you into the story, but also this, what's happening in this church. Because in a sense, you know, we're not there yet. We're not arrived. We've been going for four and a half years and, uh, you know, we, we still don't get to pick our service time, you know. We kind of ended up here at 4 o'clock. And we're, we're still struggling towards a goal of self-sufficiency financially in 2013. We're not there yet, but don't we have a foothold, in a sense, in the promised land? Midtown? I don't know if you know Midtown. Is the, Sacramento is the promised land. <laughs> Isn't there a sense that we're, if, if there's any way that there's something like what's happening here in Joshua, it's City Life Church. You know, we want to get there. We want to bless the city. We want to be in such a place that we're missed. And people would say, where, if, if we were to, to leave all of a sudden, people would say, where did that church go? They were so interconnected to the life of the city, supporting so many organizations, so involved, so city-loving in their posture. It makes me almost want to go to church, you know, that people would say that about city life. And, you know, it's, at some point, there has to be the exploration of faith and also the, the recommitting, the chances to commit, to sign on. I remember coming out here, it all started with the idea that um, here's this call to go, Lisa and I, you know, to, to go move away from our friend networks and our family all the way to California. Sure, it's beautiful California, but talk about uncertainty and instability. But there was some sense, you might cynically call it naivete, some sense that God was writing a bigger story out of this whole thing and we were getting written into it. And we get on site and they say, people who know what, how these things work, tell me, this totally inexperienced person at starting a church, well, what you end up having to do is, is you know, raise all this money yourself in order to even have the structure um, and to have a position for yourself. You've got to go you know, and raise $20,000 this year and go ask people for money. Okay, whoa. And it'll get more after that. But then saying, okay, because there's a sense in which God was writing a bigger story and inviting us into it. And then you get to the point where, maybe a few of you were there, where you, we're going to have Sunday services, and, but it's going to be every week. Talk about scary. 
It'd be nice to know you could just kind of pull out here and there and see how it goes, but there's a sense in which once you start this train, it's got to keep going. And if there's a Sunday off, that's probably not a good sign. But we did it, and we took that leap off what felt like a cliff because there was a sense that God was writing a bigger story, and he was inviting us into it. We had some kind of role. And then when that did happen and there were no more services all of a sudden, and I got an email on a Thursday morning that said, this October, uh, the building is condemned. You're not going to be able to worship here. And we had three weeks without meeting. That was a terrifying email to get. Nick was sitting there when I got it, and I looked up, and I said what this email is about, and I just sat there <laughs> and processed what that meant on a Thursday when my sermon was mostly finished, you know. Um, but you know what happened? As scary as that was, you know what I saw? What do you know? There's a whole bunch of other people who have committed to being written into this story. And over three weeks of not meeting, what I saw was glaring evidence of commitment. I was, I was amazed. It's like it woke me up. It had been there, but I just woke up to it. Wow, this is, this is actually pretty cool. And we end up here, and it just keeps going. And I don't know what's going to happen next. But I'm pretty excited about this story. And I, wanted, I don't know where it goes. I don't know what God's going to write. But I hope that you'll consider being a part of it. And I want you to think about this. Every week I'm going to keep saying, I'll close with this. Every week I'm going to keep saying, we're a safe place to explore faith. Be in process with us as long as you want. But I'm also going to keep doing this. I'm going to keep saying, consider today who you will serve. You need both. Be in process, ask your questions, but you need to stop and evaluate and consider, what if? What if I gave up on all the pressure of making a name for myself and writing my own script, and I just gave it all to God who could do such a better job of writing the big story of grace? Will you enter into a story of grace? Let's make it real practical. There's a, there's a clipboard for every team I could think of in the back with pictures of the people connected to those teams. Walk past that on your way out, pick one up, look at them, consider, is there a place that you fit in this that you haven't yet connected with? Let's pray. Dear God of grace, um, will you inspire us? <clears throat> the idea that you go to a wedding and you'd have a name tag that said, says, I commit to blank, is terrifying. And it's terrifying for us to consider um, putting our lives in a sort of um, complete way into your story. So will you inspire us through your Holy Spirit Will you help us get past the small or big barriers that stand in our way to being fully on board with the story or with a life of commitment to gratitude and to thankfulness because of what you have done? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.